Hello and welcome to a Karakitsu podcast. Today we're interviewing Dr. Nate Kaiser about his approach to helping patients who suffer from dysautonomias. You'll also learn three assessment procedures that you need to start performing to find out if a dysautonomia is a hidden component of your patient's clinical presentation. If you'd like to learn more about how to leverage clinical neuroscience to help more patients, please visit karakinstitute.com. Hello and welcome to Care Kinsuit Podcast. Uh, today we are grateful because we have uh, an expert in uh, for a particular condition on the phone. We are being joined by Dr. Nate Kaiser, a Carrick Institute faculty member. Uh, Nate, are you there? Yes, sir. How are you? I am great. Uh, Dr. Kaiser, you, you've gotten a lot of attention as being one of the best for treating um, a certain type of condition. It's actually a big category. Uh, the condition, the category is dysautonomias. So I want to get into that. Um, but but thank you very much for, for coming on the show. This is a treat. First time on the show. Are you ready for this? Yeah, I'm excited. Thank you for, for having me on and hope we can we can share some good stuff for the, the people listening out there. Yeah, no, I'm sure we will. With, with, with your level of knowledge, uh, that'll be an easy thing to do. Hey, but listen, since you this is the first time on the show, um, you know, I've already said that you're a Karakinsuit faculty member, and the Karakinsuit is very proud of our faculty. We get brilliant people, and uh, you've been teaching for us for, for several years now. But can you tell us a little bit more about yourself and your background, who you, know, who you are and where you came from? Sure. Um, so I'm just a simple Midwestern kid, born and raised in in, uh, in Michigan, and I went to I graduated from Michigan State University, my undergrad, and then went on to Life University. Uh, had a great experience there, and was able to learn a lot, and uh, began training with the Carrick Institute right away uh, as soon as I started school there. And uh, yeah, graduated, went on to become a Carrick, Inst- Carrick Institute faculty member, which I'm, I'm very proud of, and have since had the opportunity to, uh, was able to work with Dr. Carrick, which was a, uh, probably the biggest learning experience uh, I could have ever asked for, so I'm very grateful for that, and have since been um, just nose to the grindstone, trying to help as many people as we can and, uh, and see if we can't do it a little better every day. Excellent. Yeah. Hey, and actually, in regards to your teaching, you're you're teaching. I mean, you've taught everywhere for us, uh, but you're teaching up in Europe coming up, aren't you? I am. I get to go. I'm going to go to Paris uh, here in a couple weeks, which I've never been before. So I'm excited to go, and I think uh, it's going to be fun. I hope I hope to see a lot of our our European friends up there, and uh, and hopefully some new faces uh, as we as we get a. A big strong group out in that part of the world. Oh, I'm sure with, with you on the, with you as the teacher, I'm, I'm sure we'll get a nice, uh, good audience for you. So that's excellent. Well, excellent. Well, listen. So let's get right into it. Um, you know, this autonomous is interesting. Some people don't really like treating them. They can be really picky. But let's start off with the basics. Um, what what is a dysautonomia? I mean, not only is the word difficult to say, but it's difficult to understand. What what are we dealing with? What is a dysautonomia? Yeah, so it's it's kind of a, a catch-all term, you know what I mean? So a dysautonomia is basically anything that is affecting uh, just normal homeostatic autonomic control. Uh, so we typically think of these when we see them in practice as more um, as more severe cases, things where we see orthostatic intolerances and variance in blood pressures and heart rates and all of these things that have very severe consequences for people. But you also have to remember 
that the people that are maybe not even um, not even looking for them are seeing them every day when you think about things like migraine as being a form of dysautonomia or even the precursors to things we see with vascular disorders and stroke. Remember these, um, you know, transient ischemic attacks, these things are, are all forms of, of, of autonomic compromise. So even though we have kind of severe variants that show up clinically, we also see subclinical ones. And my contention is, is that uh, if they're diagnosed earlier and recognized earlier and we can do something for them, is there a possibility that we may be able to to change the outcomes for these people and more threatening things down the road? Oh. And the fun thing is, is if we're good at it, we'll never know. Um, but we'll know in our hearts that we did something special for that person. Well, let's uh, let's break this up a little bit. So what are the severe ones? Like if somebody's like, I have a dysautonomia, I have X, Y, and Z. What are the, the more severe ones that people uh, may or may not have heard of? Yeah, so in our world where, you know, people tend to see things that are a little more um, severe, a little more of the zebra kind of, kind of a thing, we see um, postural variants, so postural uh tachycardias or POTS, postural orthostatic tachycardic syndrome. Mm-hmm. Uh, we see that very frequently, uh, especially when people injure their injure their brain, uh, whether that be through something like a concussion or a whiplash or even through different types of uh, infections. We see them post-viral and different things like that. You can also have kind of the, the kissing cousin to POTS, which is um, orthostatic intolerance associated with like a vasovagal syncope where they simply cannot uh, activate their blood delivery system or, or a component of the sympathetic system to adequately fuel the brain. Um, both of these are kind of either end of the spectrum, so to speak, you know, so one mm-hmm. is like kind of cranking away and one can't kick in if we put it simply like that. Um, but there can be any shade of gray in between. So those are kind of the big ones. Mm-hmm. And uh, if those are the big ones, then you already mentioned some of the ones that are kind of in front of us, but we're not really aware of. I think one you've said was migraines. And then are there <clears throat> other conditions that are, um, I don't want to say subclinical, but almost like hidden where you're like, hey, if you have X, Y, or Z, that may be caused by dysautonomia. Yeah, so we see all sorts of these all the time. Um, so I got, <clears throat> I got my kind of, my feeding through the fire hose, working with, with Dr. Carrick in Atlanta, and we were seeing a ton of head injuries and concussions, and that's really where I got a chance to cut my teeth. And um, as a consequence of that, we saw a ton of dysautonomic patients, and that kind of forced me into learning more and expanding that that part of my world. Um, so that is one of the big things is, is all of the, the symptomatology that we see associated with concussion can have large impacts when uh, when we look at dysautonomic symptoms. So one of the things that I like to talk about is I have people think about their their hangover, their worst hangover in recent memory. Uh, and I know I know everybody out there has has one that kind of grabs you. And if you think about all the symptoms that kind of come with that the next morning, so you think about you know, you wake up, you've got your dry mouth. You get that pulse in your head, the pounding, you kind of mm-hmm. open your eyes to see, kind of do a, a status check on everything and see where you're at. The light's really bright and sounds are way too loud. 
get some little heart palpitations or you can feel your heart kind of pounding in your chest. You get that sweaty kind of gross feeling. Um, I'm hoping that sounds familiar to some of you. And then, you know, if you're brave, uh, you stand up. And when, when you stand up, you kind of feel lightheaded. If you're really bad, you might kind of get a little tunnel vision or feel nauseous, uh, feel like you might throw up. Um, cognitively, you know, if you're one of the brave souls that like runs off to work after a night out, God bless you. Um, but you know, you're not really sharp. Stuff doesn't make a ton of sense. You're slow to respond. Everybody can kind of see that you're not doing so hot. Um, so these are kind of a lot of the variants of symptomatology that you see, you know, your exercise intolerant, you know, on and on there, there are more and more, but these are the things that we see with these dysautonomic types of of responses where that whole system just cannot regulate itself. So if maybe it's somebody that stands up and they feel dizzy to answer your question, or maybe they feel a little lightheaded or they're just not able to cognitively do the things they used to do. Maybe they, you know, they get tired with mental exercise or even physical exercise. These are things where we really start to look at if people cannot initiate or recover from these things, then we have to take a deeper look into that autonomic system, are we able to actually get fuel to the brain to perform to perform the task? Interesting. Great. Well, thank you for that, Chair. Hey, one of the things that I remember as uh, going through the traumatic brain injury program with Dr. Carrick, and uh, he always stressed the importance of clearing up any dysautonomic uh, issues in a patient. Why, why was he always so uh, poignant on that on uh, his clinicians uh, applying that concept? Why is it so important? Well, it, it's, it's got to be the, the first checkbox, right, before you start the engine. Because if, I mean, you know this, if many of you um, have trained athletes or trained yourselves through athletic competition. And if you were to go out and, you know, Freddie's, I think you like to wrestle. If you were to, <laughs> if you were to hold your breath and go out and try to wrestle – you're not going to get very far. Very short round. Very short round. Very short round, and you're probably not going to perform that well. And it's kind of the same concept when we do neurorehabilitation. We're essentially exercising brain cells, right? Mm -hmm. So if we're exercising them and we don't get them any fuel, then we're not going to have the greatest outcome in being able to make them better at the thing they do. Um, the interesting thing about brain cells is you guys remember from neuron theory, dust off some of those goodies is that brain cells are aerobic cells, right? We breathe for our brain. We know that. So we don't go very long um, without oxygen before we injure our brain. So we have to use aerobic pathways. And any time that we, we force those cells to use anaerobic pathways, specifically in the brain, muscle tissue is obviously different. Mm -hmm. But if brain cells have to use anaerobic pathways, and we actually see they break down, deteriorate, and oftentimes lice or die. So we have to keep them within aerobic thresholds during exercise, which means we've got to keep oxygen in the cell, which means we've got to keep vascular tissue shunting blood toward the brain and keep it keep the partial pressures of the oxygen at a point where they can get into the cell. Got it. So, I mean, it really comes down to the gate one, like you said, it's that, uh, you know, brain cells need fuel and activation. If it dysautonomia is going to affect fuel delivery, that's a really bad way to start uh, the rehab or the wrestling match, right? Fuel is important. Yeah. If you, if you can't get the fuel, you're not going to get much activation and you're going to potentially hurt yourself. So no, that makes uh, I think that's, sense. I think that's the, 
the shortest version of it we can do. Um, well, I mean, you talked about some of the way they present when they're severe, and you talked some uh, some of the subclinical ones. So it seems like we need to be kind of scanning for that. And I know you, when we were discussing about having you on the show, you were like, hey, I really want to share with people things that they can do on Monday to see if their patients have dysautonomias. Let's, let's talk about that towards the end. Um, what I like to know are what are, the things, what are some of the things you can do to help a patient if you know they have a dysautonomia? Like what do treatments look like? I mean, I'm, maybe somebody who's just starting with this work doesn't even understand what that looks like. Well, what are you actively doing to help these types of patients? Well, as, I mean, as you know, you, I know you get a smile when you ask this question because there it's it's has to be individualized so someone mm-hmm. may have a dysautonomia because uh, they've got a vestibulopathy something wrong with their vestibular system or a central integrative lesion um, you know in in the way they do that but the biggest thing is you know we have misrepresentations of the body schema whether it's from the somatosensory system whether it's from the visual system or whether it's from the vestibular system or a combination thereof uh, we see these are ultimately going to have an expression in autonomic function and lots of huge fun pathways that we can burn through. But but one of the things that we want to keep in mind is we want to be able to do things for people that, that solve the problem. So if we understand that we're having a failure of fuel delivery, we then kind of have to back out using questions and, and say try to understand what what is causing this problem with fuel delivery. So that may include um, using vestibular types of rehab or, or oculomotor therapies or somatosensory or exertional types of training or orthostatic training where we put people in different positions based on where where they have failure. So the, uh, is unfortunately... That like that, uh, <clears throat> is that like that tilt table stuff that, that I, some people sometimes talk about? Yeah, so we can use the tilt table really well diagnostically and help determine if there are angular potentials where people lose their relationship with gravity, right? If, they, mm-hmm. if you know where you are in one position but not in another, uh, then that's not so cool. And we can actually see the, the sign that you've lost your relationship with gravity can be that autonomically your heart rate shoots up, you have a stress response, and, and away you go. So anytime the position of yourself in the world causes an autonomic response and that's not so cool anything we do our autonomic system should be able to rapidly compensate for so mm-hmm. i think the big take-home point is if there's anything that we do any evoked potential that you can do any kind of testing any kind of testing you do that elicits a an extreme autonomic response lets you know that that system is not not tolerable to that and that is that is essentially the the primary point of your dysautonomia or that's your entry point got it well listen let's get into the next phase uh, i mean if that's treatment it seems like it, you really it's very individualized you got to really take a step back figure out what's going on with that patient and find your i guess the gentlest way to create that positive change but uh, i think would be uh, what you were telling me is the best gift we can give people who are listening to this podcast is what are some things that they can start doing right away to find out if their patients, if, if, if this autonomia is a component of their condition? Yeah, absolutely. So I think that's where, that's where it really comes in because it's going to present itself through, through your testing and exam procedures. And as you do that and you can say, man, right at that point, all of a sudden their, their system for autonomous control just went haywire. And at that point, that's where we then look and say, can we create an intervention there to be able to do that? So some of the things we might want to monitor 
um, you know, quite frequently when I do things. Um, through my normal physical exam, my normal neurological exam, even when I've got, um, you know, video oculography goggles on someone, mm-hmm. I keep them hooked up. I, I do a constant monitor of their heart rate, do a constant monitor of their oxygen levels. Uh, that's easy to do. So even if you're relatively new and you're still getting your feet wet, if you put a simple pulse ox on people, mm-hmm. uh, you can buy one, you know, 30 bucks for like a Rolls Royce version even. And, uh, and you can watch and you can look at those heart rate fluctuations. And if someone has, has a rise in their heart rate, we know that normal should be, you know, kind of in the 70s, 72 to 78. We look at resting heart rate and we can see if they're in that pattern. But if also if we do different potentials and even if you're doing an eye movement and they do a pursuit and all of a sudden it jumps to 85, uh, that's not so cool for that person. We know that they have an increased metabolic demand for a simple task that's not good. So simple thing you can do is take the things you already know how to do that you're proficient at and monitor some autonomic findings. So you can look at the heart rate. Uh, some of you are more advanced. We look at more advanced measures. Um, we can look at direct current stimulation. We can look at actual constant monitor in heart rate and blood pressure using continuous monitoring systems, a little more pricey. Um, but if you don't have that, simple automated blood pressure cuffs or Hand manual blood pressure cuffs are really cool. We like to put them on both sides. We do bilateral blood pressures, as most of you know, um, so that we can look at any variation that's occurring within the autonomic system from side to side. The heart rate shouldn't change, but the blood pressures can based on the diameter of the vasculature. And we test those at different points. Um, once we've been led into a, into a, in a, in a clinical direction, mm-hmm. we also do them just based on simple orthostatic measures. So you may do a resting one seated like everyone does in their office. Mm-hmm. But then not a bad idea to go ahead and lay down, have the patient lay down quiet for three minutes. And once they get to a baseline level there, then you can do the same thing. You can measure it both sides. You can measure the heart rate and see if there's been any change from a, a seated to a supine position. It's also a really good place to go ahead and palpate any peripheral pulses. Uh, that's a great tool that I don't think a lot of people really take advantage of because it's just palpation. It's a simple, easy thing. It costs nothing. But just, but just feeling a radial pulse or feeling a pedal pulse, you get a really good window into not just the, the rate, but into the amplitude of the blood that's going in there. I mean, you can feel the fluid moving through the hose. And if it's really faint and light, then you know the same thing's happening when it's got to go north to the brain. I mean, you can imagine if, if your pedal pulse is down to your feet that's where gravity is already pulling the blood. So if anything, it should, you should have some nice strong pulses down there. Sure. But we find all the time that they get really weak and thready, where they almost, you almost just feel like a little kind of spurt of blood, but nothing crazy. You can imagine that when somebody stands up and you have to pump blood against the forces of gravity, so you've got to you know pump the pump the water back up into the uh, into the water tower, so to speak that takes more force. So if that system is not able to generate enough force in the feet, then we can know that the, the probability of doing that to the brain is probably not as good. So we can do the same things and check in the carotid systems as well. Um, so that's a really good take home, just even getting used to feeling where they are in, those, in the dorsal pedal pulses, checking the radial pulses, seeing if they're different side to side, and they often are. You can also then come up and do them temporally, just in front of the the external 
ear. So just in front of the ear, you can also feel the the temporal pulses, which is really great because that is a branch off the external carotid artery. So it shares the same common tree uh, with with the internal carotid artery, which takes almost all of the blood to the brain. So it's a really handy window. It doesn't cost anything, just good tactile skill, which is great for chiropractors because they're like the best tactile skill people on the planet, you know? Right, right. Good with their hands. Hey, so this is great. So I hear uh, heart rate would be is super valuable. We should kind of start paying attention there. And I hear blood pressure. And I really like Yeah, I didn't, I didn't finish that one. Sorry. Yeah, well, let's um, hear it. But that, after they're laying down, really handy to go ahead and have them stand up and mm. measure it again immediately. And we can see how quickly that system kicks back in. And, you know, as you know, we're looking for certain changes. We, we want to see with heart rate, we don't want to see that heart rate climb really more than 10 points. But once we get over 20 points, we really start looking at some clinical significance with that. And, uh, and anyone that has a consistent heart rate over 120 or so, we really, really take a strong look at um, looking at these sorts of things. And then with the blood pressure, we look at the 20 over 10 model. So we don't want to see a change of uh, more than a drop of more than 20 um, millimeters of mercury in the systolic or 10 millimeters of mercury in the diastolic and it happens all the time and it's a huge window into understanding those two sides of the uh, the equation that we talked about earlier and then another concept of that that's the kind of the the simple bread and butter you make sure when they stand up you kind of keep an eye on them don't let them pass out check in with them but also <laughs> make sure they're not leaning against the table also and not supporting their legs or giving themselves a tactile stimulation with the legs because um, a lot of what we see is is uh, reference to pooling. Um, and by giving them uh, a data point in the leg, you can actually kind of skew your data. Another thing you want to see is how long they are able to sustain that. So in many people that have different autonomic consequences, they may not show up right away. But over the course of 15 minutes, um, you may see that they're – blood pressure actually begins to fall or their heart rate compensates by going up. And that's a really handy tool. Now, most of people can't hang out with their patients for 15 minutes um, just checking blood pressures. Mm -hmm. Some people, but we should. Um, but you can look really quickly and see even if over the course of five minutes, you know, just checking that blood pressure every minute, checking the heart rate every minute, mm -hmm. uh, you can start to see some patterns. And if we see the blood pressure start to fall or the heart rate's going up, then we really want to take a look at that because that's where um, you can see some real clinical data and this is something you can easily train someone else to do if it's not something that, that you do with them. So this is beautiful. So you're giving us a little bit of like a sequence here, kind of like a dance. So I'm, I'm envisioning, so we have uh, heart rates, uh, take a look at that aspect and while they're seated and do some blood pressures and you would do this bilaterally, right? For the blood pressures. Yeah, okay. I use automatic blood pressure cuffs and mm -hmm. I just slap them on there and hit the button and, uh, do one at a time or both at the same time. I'll do, I'll do. Well, it depends. So we look at the information that comes out to start with. Mm -hmm. um, and then I also, so a couple, you know, we're getting a little deeper into the model. But um, I check the VA ratios beforehand, and I'm looking to see if there's any any changes in those, uh, in the the arterial stiffness in the, in the fundoscopic exam. Mm -hmm. And then I check those initial blood pressures, and I want to see what brings those out. If I find that... Um, they're relatively symmetrical, then I may just do one. Otherwise, I'll do both. But we'll just pop them on and do them both, and it's really easy to do. You can even do, um, you know, radial blood pressures or even even in the ankles for those of you that have a little more specialized equipment. 
Uh, that works really, really well. Okay, awesome. Well, this is great. So the, the blood pressure is bilaterally, then you put them supine, and you, you said three minutes is what I heard. Roughly, yeah. I mean, three minutes, uh, if you look at some of the data from, <laughs> it's, there's actually some really good Russian studies from back when it was the, still the Soviet Union, um, looking at direct current activity, and, and we know that that recovery should occur within three minutes or so. Mm-hmm. Um, so if they're quiet for three minutes, then that's a pretty good biomarker. Okay, awesome. And then from there, we stand them up. And then you were saying you would do an immediate uh, start monitoring the heart rate. And, see, and it sounds to me like since you're using a pulse ox, you're monitoring that heart rate the whole time anyways. But you just kind of take a reading. You would yep. then – go ahead. Yeah, you take that snapshot then. Yeah, because, again, it's only a snapshot, right? So then we stand up really quick, and then same thing. You're going to take a look at that heart rate, see our response, and then those bilateral blood pressures again – and you said uh, 20 over 10 is what we don't want to see for a drop. And in regards to heart rates, I heard you say it was about 20 beats. We start becoming suspect of uh, if it increases more than 20 bits, so it's become tachycardic more than 20 beats per minute, you start becoming a little more uh, suspect for a dysautonomia. Did, did, I get that, did I get that right? I'm taking my notes here. Yeah, no, that's great. And then we look at, at variabilities that occur not just from orthostasis, not just from standing up, although that's a great challenge, but you can, you can use those simple, simple, simple tests and apply them whether you're looking at you know, what happens when you initiate a postural demand or if you turn their head, does it happen? Hmm. And you can really, the, the exam becomes very rich and rewarding for them because you can look at the things that they don't do well, check their autonomics during those times, and now we have a a measurable biomarker to go with the things that you see. So if you can't afford the really fancy equipment, man, you can afford some really um, well-researched autonomic equipment that can tell you the same results. So uh, it's a really good place for people to hone their skill with. Got it. Well, this is awesome. So this is, I mean, I don't know, they'll love this because this is the type of thing that people are listening to. They could apply this uh, to that patient who's uh, coming in a few hours, right, for that new patient exam and uh, trying to understand why they've been feeling terrible for a couple of years and nobody's told them why yet. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, um, I, I, think, I think they're phenomenal markers and they change so fast and they give such a great window into the trainability of the system or the integrity of the system that, um, you know, Dr. Carrick has talked about for years and years and years, monitoring autom- autonomics and looking at pupils, looking at VA ratios, looking at blood pressures. And, and he's, I mean, he's been on the, He's been on the task for a very long time in understanding this, and I think people, um, I think people can can get a ton of benefit from that. And it doesn't have to get overly complicated. They're easy things to see and easy things to see very quickly, and things that you can get really excited about with your patients if you can have a positive outcome for them. Got it. Well, awesome. Listen, Dr. Kyler, this is an amazing share. I'm very appreciative for it. Um, and it seems to me like you probably have a lot more to share in this concept because there has to be a reason people keep mentioning you as the go-to guy for these complex neurological dysautonomias. Because um, <laughs> I, I, I hear that you even have some approaches that are not very common, but you find very valuable. So I'm thinking we may have to bring you back on the show in the future so we can dive deeper into this topic because I feel like we're just kind of skimming it for today. You know, we are. We're on the top level of it, but it doesn't make it any less valuable. And I, I, I hope that people get that. So there's, you know, I, in, in the population of people I see, I see people that um, usually have been somewhere else to somebody that was really highly trained. Um, 
and still needed more help. So I see a certain population of people, um, <clears throat> but I still use these same simple techniques, excuse me, <clears throat> combined with, with the other things that are a little more elaborate. Um, so that's, there's still a ton of value there, but uh, there are a lot of deeper ways that we can look at it um, that are really fun and I think would be really valuable uh, in this community and, and things we can, we can share for sure. Excellent. So listen, I'm going to have to bring you on again, Dr. Kaiser. Listen, I think everybody is going to love this, but if they want to connect with you, they want to learn more about you, how do they, how do they find you? Um, well, I have a website, uh, drkaiser.com. It's very elaborate. <laughs> is, it, is it DR Kaiser or uh, DOC? Yeah. DR, DR Kaiser. And then, um, and you Kaiser's, know, face- Kaiser is spelled uh, K-E-I-S-E-R, right? That's that's right. Yeah, right, awesome. and you, I need to go buy all the other domains just to cover the bases. <laughs> but uh, yeah, K E I S E R, and you know Facebook and Instagram and those things. And we have some different blog activities. And then uh, uh, actually in ResearchGate, there's any of our research nerds like I am. <clears throat> um, we have a profile there where we kind of share some of the projects we're working on, and uh, and that can be a, another cool avenue as well. Excellent. Well, Dr. Kaiser, thank you very much for your time and your share. I'd love to have you on the show again uh, to look into this concept deeper. I think we're going to get some uh, requests for that. If you enjoyed this podcast or want to learn more about dysautonomies with Dr. Kaiser, uh, make sure to reach out to us on the Contact Us page on karakinsu.com. Dr. Kaiser, thank you very much for your time. I know you're a busy guy helping all the patients, um, and let's have you on again. Yeah, we're just kind of getting started, so I'm looking forward to, to hearing some feedback and to uh, to see in how deep people want to go with it because uh, we can definitely have some more fun. Excellent. All right. Have a great day, Dr. Kaiser. Thanks, Freddie's. You too. If you enjoyed this podcast and would like to make any suggestions for any future podcast topics, please visit the Contact Us page on karakinstitute.com.